So welcome to ANC. I'm glad uh, that you stopped off on the way. I just want to acknowledge something that sometimes we overlook. Some people in the room, it's a really big step to be in a room like this. And I just want to say, um, we're all working through some stuff related to our past. And if you have ever promised yourself you'd never go back to church and here you find yourself, it's a big deal. And I see that. And so hopefully we um, can get the gospel presented in a way that will resonate with what's written on your heart because that's how you know it's gospel, right? It's not somebody else's ideas, something that resonates inside. So last week, we started off a new series, and I, I foolishly titled it The Isms Related to Christianity, and I hadn't read Judah Smith's new sermon series name until after I named mine, and I would have named it what he named his because he's far smarter. If you don't know who Judah Smith is, he's a pastor in Seattle, and he's sharp as a tack. But it seemed like it made a lot of sense. Anyway, I'm not positive I got the title right, and I'm not sure I got the tone right last week, but we're going to have a long, slow, intentional conversation this summer about some of the scary ideologies that grow right next to the gospel in our heart. It grows so dangerously close to the gospel inside that sometimes for us, it's almost impossible to see the difference. And history will evaluate those things that grew in the things that we built together. And our grandchildren will look back and say, how could you have not seen that? And yet for most of us, we're so close we can't make out the detail. And that makes a lot of sense to me now since I'm losing all my eyesight from here to here. Like somebody shows me something and I'm like, I can't, I can't. Y'all think that those selfie sticks are for taking selfies. That's actually so people like I can read have to put it out on a selfie stick and I can see what it is. But there's this interesting thing that happens we internalize the gospel so profoundly and we think we've got it and we're off to the races and the next thing you know, some really bizarre things happen in that same space. And so we're gonna have a long conversation about some of that. I'm already gearing up for next week where we're gonna talk about sexism and theology and sexism in the church. I'm gonna warn you, it's probably gonna be a service of public repentance. I don't know how else to handle a subject like that. So it's gonna be different each week, but last week we talked about legalism, this week we're gonna talk about fundamentalism. I think my role as a pastor is to name things that you're going through. Like, I'm not here to create new experiences, and I hope the first time you've had a thought is not because something I've said. Here's what I hope happens. I hope that by naming something, you can say, that feels right. It's like when you read a book the first time and you're like, wow, this person is saying what I've been thinking for years. That's what I'm hoping to do this summer. So we're going to spend some time doing that. I think that might be the role of a pastor, to be honest, to be the namer-in-chief of what's going on. You know what's going on. What you may not know is how many of us are suffering from the same things, right? And when it's named in such a way, you're like, okay, I can now take to the outside this thing that I thought was only happening to me. The gospel grows next to some really harmful stuff. Another way to put it is Christians can be super weird sometimes. <laughs> Man, you look back and you think, how did we end up with that list of things we couldn't do? Like, seriously, cards, y'all? Like, man, I don't, I, anyway, it's a long story. I love an analogies, and so an analogy that makes sense to me is a garden. My mom was a master gardener to this day, loves to grow things. It just seems to make sense, and here's how I like to think of it. We need to look closely at what's growing next to the things that we're trying to resource and let them flourish, because right next to it is something that's going to be interesting to pick out. Jesus, one of his favorite analogies was that of wheat. And so he would say this, life-sustaining wheat, the fruit that brings us strength, the very sustenance that will feed our children disturbingly, grows right next to something that looks just like it but isn't. 
Now, if you're reading from the older text, it would call it tares. I think in the newer translations, it just calls it wheat. Wheat grew right next to tares. And what was the difference? Tares produced no fruit. They looked just like wheat. But in the end, it was a, it was a wasted endeavor. And so it was every farmer's nightmare because right next to what they're trying to cultivate to sustain their families is growing something that looks so close but produces no fruit. In the end, it was worthless. It was utterly worthless. But it thrived in the same soil as the wheat. Let's read from Matthew chapter 13. It's called the parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed, good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, and then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good wheat in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Verse 28, an enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, I love this, do you want us to go and pull them up? I know, easy, we'll go pull them up. No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Verse 30 says, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. How long has the church thought that her position in the world, her purpose in society was to be the sole definer of sin and righteousness when all along, it's not terribly obvious to us given our lack of clarity what is wheat and what is tares? We want to be part of the, the definition, the agency that defines what is good and bad, what is righteous, what is evil, what is acceptable, what is not, and how many pompous, bigoted, self-indulgent speeches have we suffered through in our century alone made by men who pretended to speak for God with incredible clarity when in reality they didn't know the difference. I grew up watching them on TV. We didn't stream it. We went streaming on Saturday to get our feet wet in a river. We watched TV. They were separate events. But I remember watching people rail from public pulpits against sexual immorality. And I learned to associate that person must be guilty because one, two, three, four fall one after another. So absolutely positive they could see unrighteousness. And so blind to what was growing in their own heart. So we're going to talk about fundamentalism. And any conversation that I'm involved in with fundamentalism begins with a couple of confessions. And here they are. I'm embarrassed by evangelical leaders who claim that Ebola was God's curse for Obama's foreign policy. You remember that news break? I'm just picking a few. We could go on for weeks with these headlines. I was embarrassed in the 80s when the AIDS epidemic was looked at by the evangelical church as God's punishment upon the gay community. I love this one, and this is a direct quote. So if you're listening to the podcast, we got a little sarcasm bunnies here. I'm embarrassed by the prominent leader who once described feminism this way. Hear this. It's a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, become lesbians. That's a direct quote. I'm embarrassed when a radio tower falls down because somebody cuts a guy wire, they blame it on the gay community, then they raise four times the cost of what insurance replaced. I'm embarrassed by a lot of what happened in the 20th century in mainline American fundamentalism. I'm embarrassed by a ton of these people who follow Jesus. I don't know if you've had that sensation when somebody asks you what you do and you have to confess, well, I'm a pastor and you can watch their eyes roll back and they're pulling back the images from TV and you're like, yeah, but not that kind. 
You just want, I went to a seminary that pulled a certain denominational title off of its name because it didn't want to be affiliated with the people who shared that name. Fundamentalism, a lot like legalism, is born in fear. We talked about legalism last year, and at its, at its core, it's a disbelief that you could possibly be pleasing to God, and so you have to hustle, and you have to be legally compliant, and you've got to watch all the details with an eagle eye because you don't know deep down inside that the work is done, and so legalism is birthed in fear. And fundamentalism, I would say, is its first cousin. It has a similar root. You might think of fundamentalism as what happens when fearful legalistic people band together in defense mode against a shifting culture. Here's my question. Has culture ever not been in constant flux and flow? Has culture ever not shifted under the feet of anyone? You tell me. Have we ever managed to freeze things and say, okay, this far, no further, this is as far as it goes? Has the church ever won that argument? I think that's a pretty self-evident answer. We're going to reflect primarily on American, American fundamentalism, but it comes in all flavors. Watch the news headlines for Hindu nationalists determined to purify their homeland of the Muslims. Listen for Islamic fundamentalists, right, who use terror to affect their sort of goals for society. They come in the Jewish variety too. They're called Zionists, and they're trying to eradicate the holy land of Palestinians, the West Bank. And then, of course, there's the Christian fundamentalists that we are familiar with who rally people of faith to political and military action around the globe by speaking to us with our language and re-electing them. So it comes in all stripes. I've said this before, but I think fundamentalists, fundamentalists within the movements of faith are the very problem with those same systems. They do more to threaten and undermine those very systems than any external pressure or shift in culture, I might say, whether it's theological, social, scientific, or otherwise. What am I trying to say? Every faith system carries within it enough fissile material to take it out from the inside. It doesn't need an enemy. It doesn't need a hostile culture. It seems that we carry deep inside us the ability to completely self-contradict ourselves in front of an onlooking world with the limelight on. Jesus understood the internal world. He would often say it's what comes from the heart that condemns us, not the ways that we are legally incompliant to purity laws. It's a cancer that grows within, secretly altering our ability to thrive and grow, and it's far more dangerous than anything society can threaten us with. So let me say this. As much as Christians have always screamed and yelled at the changes in societal, societal assumptions and social mores, the church has never succeeded in stopping a moving culture. I don't think it's necessary, and I don't think it's the, the object of the gospel. Now, I'm right up against what you probably were taught growing up. I don't think it's the goal of the gospel to stop progress in society. I think the goal of the gospel is to transform hearts. In fact, here's a rule of thumb. Whenever people of faith stand in front of you and start yelling things like, we've got to go back to the way things were, we've got to go back to our gilded age, to a that, that something from our past is our preferred future, I'm telling you, be afraid they've lost their way. The way is always forward. Forward is always the direction of the gospel. Not back to a time when everyone behaved and everyone knew what they believed. There's no reverse option for the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Besides, this is no Christian country. Not if you're yellow or red or black or non-white or unlanded or differently abled or female. There's no gilded age, y'all. What am I up against? What are we talking about? Inside, deep down inside, fundamentalist sort of impulse is this, is this statement that says we've got to go back to a safe harbor in our history, and I'm suggesting that that doesn't exist. Every culture, linguistic, economic, and every change that you can name is a new opportunity for love to connect and make sense. Have you noticed? Love has always made sense. 
It's the institutions we build that don't. To be human is to have enough neurons stacked in just the right place so that we have the capacity to extrapolate non-concrete ideas so we can have fear, we can see a shifting shadow and we can respond. It saves our lives, but when we rally around that fear and build religious institutions, they become very scary and they become very certain what's dangerous and what isn't. It seems to be human is to have fear and to do faith together is to have the capacity to build fear-driven systems. Do you ever wonder why every time the angel or God's agency addresses human beings on earth preserved in Scripture, it almost always starts with the same words, fear not. It's our default position. So let's look briefly at the roots of fundamentalism in America, very briefly. At the beginning of the 20th century, things were changing fast. It was a time of incredible cultural shift. And to combat these changes, a series of actually two brothers who were oil, oil tycoons from uh, California got together and they issued a series of pamphlets and they were called The Fundamentals. It was a series, uh, it was a discussion, a testimony to the truth, and they were written between 1910 and 1915, and that's where fundamentalism gets its name, from the name of these pamphlets. As the Renaissance gives way to the Enlightenment, and Enlightenment gives birth to modernity, where people were thinking as individuals and began to navigate in society differently, a whole new set of questions and how we handle our text came to be. People wanted to know all of a sudden, is authorship correct? Who actually wrote these letters? They want to understand the geopolitics of the preservation of this material, right? And the changing cultural assumptions and how the scriptures work as people become alive and begin to explore and those people find each other and science is on the rise. Fundamentalisms look at the, fundamentalists look at this and say, we're losing something. We've got to stop and go back. You might remember the book, the only person in the room who was alive when it was written is Mac. He told me today. 1859, Charles Darwin finally, <laughs> right? It's not even funny. He actually came up to me and named who was at the Scopes trial as if he was in the gallery. But I actually, I went back and looked at my black and whites and there he was. It's amazing. <laughs> Charles Darwin writes a book, you've heard of it, called The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle of Life in the Fall of 1859. He finally got the science of Dr. Henry Bates, who did some research in the Amazon basin, and he was able to determine that species would mimic one another to survive their, their existence in the rainforest. And so by getting this together, we call that Batesian mimicry, he finally was able to step out and say, I think adaptation is the way species sort of work. And that claim that species adapt doesn't seem terribly threatening to us now, but at the time it was perceived by people of faith to be the great undoing of truth, and they fought it tooth and nail. For the first time in public schools, you might hear lectures on the theory of evolution next to a biblical, traditional story of Genesis. And the collective sense of the fundamentalists at the time was that the entire faith system was at risk. If science can rise and if it can compete as truth, the truth of scriptures, then the whole thing is undone. You see, any discussion of scripture as anything other than the ultimate word on science and faith and dogma and history and all of it was to be un was, was to be was to be eliminated, and overnight, science was perceived as the enemy of faith. Now, if you're a scientist in the room, I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me very clearly. Science is no enemy of faith. It's no enemy of truth. To all my beloved scientists and researchers in this room, keep doing your good work. We need it. We need your good work. Keep researching the brain and human behavior and the history of Texas and addiction and sexuality and the theology and chemistry at the bottom of all of it is something we need. We need to hear what you hear. We need to see what you see. Keep pursuing, keep learning, keep telling us what you discover. Our notions of truth and gender and brain activity and neuroscience and sexual attraction, all of it needs to, to, to hold up under the weight of your discovery. You know forward is the only direction. 
You're not so easily fooled. The fundamentalist looked at science as an enemy of faith, but it's no enemy of faith. This gave birth to a trial. You may remember this. This is where I, I have reason to believe Mac was actually present. It was, there was a law case in the state of Tennessee. It was called the State of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes. We call it the Scopes Monkey Trial. And actually, the, the, the jury, the, the, the court found in favor of the fundamentalists, but they lost the heart of the American public. It was such a monkey ex- extravaganza of, of stretching Scripture to accommodate for all these different things that they completely lost their footing in society. That's when the moment fundamentalism becomes a negative title instead of a compliment. You see, what was rising was something called biblical liberalism. It just wanted to look at the authorship. It wanted to look at the origin. It wanted to understand genres of Scripture. It wanted to know what's at the bottom. What's going on in the societies that are... These things seem so natural to us, but I'm describing something that was rising a century ago that gave birth to to, to, to a fear-based system that has an impact on all of us. There was so much fear associated with tinkering with the text at all, even in the smallest ways with the holy text, with our sacred text, that they pulled away from public life and they gave birth to their own institutions, planted their own colleges. If I named them, you would know them. Eventually gave rise to what we call biblical inerrancy, which is a doctrine that's celebrating its 100th year in the next few years. It's not terribly ancient. It basically said this, that you can't question anything, that basically the Holy Spirit was driving the arm of those who wrote these things, and there's no interpretation necessary. The only way to stave against the flow of culture is to drive a stake and say, this is what it says, it's what it said, and you cannot tinker with it. No more ideas of this is ancient, diverse, and sometimes ambiguous, and sometimes we have to do the hard work to understand what did the author mean, and sometimes looking over the shoulder of an author as he writes a letter to a church that he started doesn't necessarily make sense to us in other worlds. No, no, the biblical inerrantist said, no, no, anything less than 100% fact is unacceptable. Here's my claim. Fundamentalism is born in fear. It's fear-driven. It's born to stem the flow, to stop what was perceived as a slide down a slippery slope, to defend against the truth that's rising through science and observation because no critique could be sustained, no critique could be tolerated, and it didn't work. It didn't stop progress, did it? It stopped nothing. It failed miserably, and it's an embarrassment to people of faith to this very day. And it would be so easy to forget if we didn't wrap our own hearts and our understandings of God around fear. See, it grows in our garden too. It grows in our garden too. Were it not for the fact that fear fuels us, it would be easy to say it was not our most flattering chapter. We can just let it go. Oh, but I'm concerned that we do more than just historical work. I'm concerned that we look through the garden that we're tending and we ask the hard questions. Where am I motivated by fear? Where does fear drive me? All my trauma-informed therapists in the room know this. Fear is a real thing. It has a brain stamp. It changes your neuropathology. And when you're dealing with fear, you have to keep a couple of things crystal clear. It's not the same as evil. We're not talking about evil. We're talking about fear, and it's a different thing. So as much disdain and disrespect as we may share for the fundamentalists that seem brittle and smug and out of date, and they look at the way we do church and community, and they they dismiss it all and they disapprove of all of it. No matter how embarrassed we are by the, the, the various chapters and when our non-believing friends lump us together with those same people and we just want to say, I'm not saying the world is ending. I'm not going back. As much as we gather around this thing as ashamed as I am of 4th of July F-15 flyovers for church picnics when they sing patriotic songs and they've somehow woven it so tightly, the gospel with Americana, that you can't get it separate. As much as I'm embarrassed by all of that, it's, a, it's an ideology born in fear. 
And that fear is still real for us. It marks our brain. It impacts the things we build together. It makes us feel exposed. And it makes us think if we could just go back to safer times, we'd be better off. But there is no safe harbor in our history. There is no gilded age. We might think there is, and we might call the herd until we feel super safe. And our kids will look at it and say, how could you let that grow next to the gospel that sets all hearts free? Fear is real, and it has a solution. It's called unconditional love. So a few thoughts as we wrap this up. I guess what I'm suggesting is going back is not a desirable option. It never was. Forward is the direction. Forward is the direction that the gospel takes us. So a few thoughts. Fundamentalism is unnecessary. It's not needed. The impulse to go back to basics is a good one, and we should all do that probably regularly. In fact, we should probably stay basic, keep it in the, the fewest moving parts possible. But going back to basics means going back to love, to mercy, to justice, not going back to a biblical interpretation when we were safe and they were not and we were the good ones and they were the enemies. Going back to us is not nationalism or racism or a particular biblical interpretation. Going back is to the basics of love. That's what you build communities on. It's fear that makes us want to go back, but there's no safety there. We go forward. Cultural progress opens new doors. Paul said countless times, we do not reach back, we reach forward. And in the book of Revelations, when the church is chastised for losing their first love, they're encouraged to go back to the basics, which was love. So fundamentalism is unnecessary. Number two, truth needs no defense. It's not more true because you can defend it. It doesn't need your defense. Certainly not from us. We suffer from the same particularity where we normalize and say what's true for us must be true for everyone in all places in all times. And so no defense from us actually increases the value of truth. Truth stands alone. Why? Because it's written on every human heart already. No defense is required. Well, I should say, Living as if love was the law, celebrating when people get what they don't deserve, we call that mercy, and living as a humble people with a posture towards God that is open to a world, that's periodically going to need some defense, primarily from the own, your own internal mechanisms that want to complicate that. Oh yeah, we should keep that basic, and we need to defend that simple truth. You bet we do, because we bolt on all kinds of things that don't belong there, don't we? So remember, my working assumption is that we're doing more than historical work together. We're looking in our own hearts and in our own community where vestiges of these things are giving birth to unproductive fruit in our midst. We may never move past fear completely, but it sure makes sense to try. And if we lean in, fear can take us all the way home. John wrote this, John who calls himself the beloved. Thanks, Jen, for that. Do you guys remember when she said, John likes to, nobody called John the beloved except John. So, First John 4 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Pause. Weren't you taught that God only loved Christians? Right? Wait, hang, hang on. Wait, what does this mean for what we've been taught about faith, about us in and them out? John clearly says everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. I'm just saying I read this in a particular way that made me feel safe, just like you did growing up, right? And I'm looking at it from a different lens. Anyhow, that's just for extra there. 
Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Verse 18 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And here's my question. Is it not the great work of our spiritual journeys to begin to peel fear away from faith? Is it not the work we do together to begin to understand how can it be that God is pleased with my mess of a life? I have to earn it. I've got to jump and dance and twirl and I've got to scream and shout and beat the heavens with wooden sticks and I've got to create all these. How can it be that that work is done? You see, it's unconditional love that pulls the weed of fear out of our heart and allows productive things to grow. It'd be so easy to critique others for getting it wrong with their leer jets and their Botox and their bizarre messages and their basilicas and, you know, so easy if it weren't for the fact that I wake up in fear on the regular, as do you. Could it be this simple? Have we gotten it right? What if we don't get it right? What if we fumble it? What if we're on the one-yard line and we drop the ball? What if our kids turn their nose up at it and walk away? It's all fear. It gives birth to really bad systems. And I think it's what love wants to address. Let's pray. Join with me on your feet. Let's pray. Sweet, sweet Jesus, how have we so misunderstood you? How have we complicated things so much that we become mean and shrill mostly to ourselves? Sweet Jesus, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Help us to release ourselves. To drop fear and to just go with love. Because you've been so good. In your name we pray. Hang on, conference. Take a breath. Where is he? There he is. I can't laugh. You know I can't see that far, Trey. Good grief, Uncle Trey. So today is Memorial Day. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, um, we asked Josh if he would lead us in a prayer. So why don't you do that? And then I'll walk us through the, the, the liturgy. Just had a couple words here, just... I wanted to read a few names first. I've got Staff Sergeant Dunning, Staff Sergeant Brasino, Sergeant Pito, Corporal Duane, Lance Corporal Escobar, Lance Corporal Glover, Lance Corporal Roberts, and PSC Ortega. These are names that I remember every Memorial Day. The names are of Marines that I served with that paid the ultimate price. These men and women never got a joyous homecoming. 
They gave their lives for you and me. Those that gave their lives simply knew that their country and their friends needed a champion to stand for them, and they willingly volunteered, no matter the cost. Memorial Day is about remembering these brave individuals and their ultimate sacrifice. Jesus once said, greater love has no one than this, to lay one's, down one's life for one's friends. Today and tomorrow, let's all take some time to recognize and remember the love that was shown to each and every one of us. Tomorrow at services across the nation, the names of the fallen will be read aloud, that we might always remember the cost, that we might never forget the love shown to us by perfect strangers. Mm. I'm sure I'm not the only one here with names on my heart this Memorial Day. I'd like to ask anyone has been personally impacted by the loss of a military member. If you would please raise your hand. Today, let us remember them with you. Father, today we come together and remember those we lost. We ask that you would comfort and be with us as we mourn our losses. These honored men and women showed us the greatest love through, through their own death. We ask that you would help us to take that sacrifice and honoring it by living a life full of love. Jesus. 